interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everybody to my bloody podcast. I'm Brian Kluger and I'm joined by the host with the most, the man I want to live in a cabin in the woods with, with a family and look at wolves, Press and Barda. What's up, buddy? <laughs> uh, not much. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. It's December. It's almost the holidays. And what a wonderful holiday treat we have today. The for, it, it comes in the form of a talented writer, director, intercontinental champion of film and television. Oh, my gourd, all the way from Canada, Sean Linden. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, we're we're going to talk about your movie, Hunter Hunter, uh, that uh, is just quite frankly fantastic. We'll get into that in a second, but first we got to start... We, we've got to start somewhere, so let's start at the beginning. Sean, where did it all begin for you in film? Was it something you watched at, in your parents' television? Did you get into it reading comic books? Where did it all begin for you? For film? Um, <laughs> well, I, I grew up not being allowed to watch TV. We read a lot of books that came in, or, or I, I grew up in a big family. We weren't allowed to watch much TV or, or movies or things like that, so once I turned 18 or became more of an adult, I think that was desirable for me right off the bat. But um, I'd grown up kind of wanting to be a, a, a writer of, of books and things like that until I figured out in, in high school that people weren't really reading books. So um, I think the one moment for, for, for movies that made me realize that this was something that was possible was was Reservoir Dogs from from Quentin Tarantino. I saw that as a a teenager and I can remember the the memory vividly which goes to show how significant it was but sitting in my friend's basement with some lemon gin that we had snuck and and of just sitting there going like if you can make something that compelling in in one room then then I could probably do it too. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I, I took a, a lot of philosophy in, in university and, and tried to find some kind of a, a, a voice and then went on to the film industry, the local film industry here. I, I was in the art department for uh, 10 or 11 years. And during that time was, was just writing and, and trying to scrounge together my own movies. So um, that's kind of what I did all the way up until my first film, which was in, in 2007, so. Was that your first, like the first studio made film or did you make some stuff at school like with the home video cameras or anything like that? No, I've, I've never even made a short film before. The first movie that I'd made was self-financed. It was, you know, our life savings and the life save or the, some money from our friends and things like that scrounged together. And, and uh, we made it completely outside, even the local system. It was just a bunch of people who didn't really know what they were doing. Was that nobody? Yeah. 
Nobody is that the the noir thriller, right? Yes, it's uh, kind of a, <clears throat> sorry, it's kind of a noir sci-fi with horrorish elements. Um, usually, the movies I make kind of dabble in in more than one genre at a time. But yeah, it was fortunate enough; like it it made its money back right away because there was no money put into it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was where I started and and kind of moved on from there. And uh, working back then in the art department um, in Canada, right? Yep. You mm-hmm. had uh, you had you might have some fun stories with fireworks and maybe Patrick Swayze at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first, the first, one of the first movies that I was in years and years ago. I think it was called Shall We Dance or something like that. I don't mean to. It's it's not really disrespecting the the past, but um, yeah, I was I was on a dance movie called Shall We Dance that was. Patrick Swayze was directing and starring in and um, I was I was just an art department trainee and my only job was to go by with this big dry mop on the on the dance floor and clear it off every time there was a take or there was a performance or something like that and I was running the mop along the floor and suddenly just bumped into um, Patrick Swayze who was uh, lying in a in a very deep sleep (laughs) Um, on the floor and I kind of I didn't know what to do so I went to the the first AD and I was like I'm sorry but the director is asleep on the floor and he looks at me like I had you know lobsters coming out of my ears and like just uh, sweep around him that was that was the answer (laughs) so I did I went and got the mop and I carefully swept around Patrick Swayze and I was like this is such a weird business I'm I'm on a film set that looks like it's 15 feet up or 15 stories up and sweeping around a celebrity that I'd watched since I was a kid. It was just like, yeah, this is probably the the right business for me to be in. (laughs) (laughs) Fireworks was just, it was just a funny story. I was, my only job for that was I had two wires and the, my only job was to make sure that they didn't touch. So all I had to do was just it was like Homer Simpson watching the bees. I just had to make sure that they didn't touch. And I can remember just talking with the second AD and just getting into the conversation when all of a sudden you hear a bang in the back of my shirt just wipes right over my head because all of the rockets were right behind me. And you just saw the look of fear on on the second AD's face it's illuminated as he starts backing up and running and just instantly ratting me out like pointing there's camera people that are rushing to the camera they thought that they missed rolling and trying to catch all of this and you know 20 grand of of fireworks that was carefully built into a a giant water slide park (laughs) we just watched go up and and in flames literally oh my uh, yeah. And, and all of this led to Hunter Hunter. Yeah. Well, eventually. It, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I got all of my uh, irresponsible bits out of the way early. <laughs> oh, great stories nonetheless. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that fireworks story is funny. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Hunter Hunter. Where, so I know you've written a ton of screenplays 
so far in your life. Um, when did Hunter Hunter come up? Hunter Hunter, <clears throat> the the real seed for it, and again, it's a vivid memory, so it it's, it feels significant. Was in it was in like 2007, I think. I was on, I was at a film festival in Brussels for my first movie for Nobody. And I was coming back and it had to go through like Lufthansa or something like that. And there was a huge storm and we got snowed out and uh, had to take all of the hotels in the city were all booked because of the storm. So we had to take this bus out to this kind of ski retreat or some kind of restation or relaxation retreat. Um, and we were driving through the, uh, the, 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 the it, it cuts through this, this wooded area that's completely flat. There are no hills or anything like that. And it just has, you know, creepy trees, much like the, the, the picture in your background there that, that are just sticking out like bones in the, in the forest. And there was kind of a, there was a fresh snow and there was also like a mist in the trees and, and it was that kind of moment in that that one image in Germany that that gave me the idea. I'm not going to give away the conceit of the movie, but kind of that heart, that knot of what happens to the to to Merceau, uh, the Devon Sawa's character. That was that was finished and done with. And by the time I landed on the uh, back in in Canada, the the spine of of what was originally a different movie, but or a, a quite a different movie from what it wound up being. But the the heart of it has always has always stayed there, and that was that was what started it all. Was was just an image. Mm. Wound up having you know not a ton to deal with the the movie, but you know that developed over ten years, and it began as something much uh, as a much larger story, and and got almost made. 10 times over and 50 heartbreaks and you know um it 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 walked the it did the it made the long way to to being a movie uh, but yeah finally nice. made yeah and now i'm curious on preston because preston's like coming off it raw like from just several minutes ago i think <laughs> and i'm curious on what he has to say um, I mean, I guess my, my thoughts are pretty wrapped up in the, what I said before we started recording, which is that it, it's just, it's, uh, I really did. I really loved it. Um, but I think what surprised me, cause I went into this blind, I tend to, when it's like IFC films, there's like certain companies that I just have complete trust in. And this was, um, and based cause I'm good friends with, uh, Brian, our host here, and he's been talking about it for about a month now or something. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, just going into it, I think what surprised me so much about it outside of the, the ending itself is just these little moments in it that just really speak volumes. I'm a sucker for subtlety. And so all my questions are like tied up in that. Like there's just like so many moments where I was taking notes and it was uh, finding these little ways to make the relationships feel authentic. And for one of them, for me, it was seeing the mom and dad like 
after the end of the day, after they've had these discussions about like what they're going to be doing with their lives and they just sit on the bed and they just put their heads together or put their arm around together. And so I, I, I just want to ask a little bit about that. Like at what point in your career did you like pick up all these lessons as like what to do and what not to do as a filmmaker and how subtlety can be such a gift as a filmmaker? Um, well, as a writer, it comes down to all of that kind of springs from trying to be accurate, of trying to recognize this hypothetical situation that you've created for yourself and to think about what, what the, the, the fallout or, or what the circumstances um, would entail. And using that as your example, the relationship between uh, the, the husband and wife a lot of that is based on on a, a utilitarian need, which is that there because it's so the family is so remote and so cut off from any other form of help, uh, their survival depends on their cooperation, and so they know that at the end of the day they still have to come back as that family unit because mm -hmm. that's what's required to to survive. Um, so all of the arguments that they have in, in, in figuring out how to steer this boat, um, they ultimately have to be kind of set aside when, when needed just so that you can maintain the day-to-day. -day. So that's where that kind of stuff came from. And it's, it's great to find um, human elements that kind of come organically out of the situ circumstances that you've created. Mm. So, so how much of those organic moments, just because so much of this movie is silent, like you're directing silence and you're getting reactions out of people that need to feel real. So I'm just kind of curious about those conversations that you had with your cast members about creating something that as an audience member, I'm being enveloped into the story because it's authentic. Um, well, just as an example with, with Devin, Devin's character plays a very, you know, the strong silent type. And a lot of that's just, again, it's utility. He lives out of the, out in the wilderness and doesn't generally have a chance to communicate with people. So it was a point of when I was discussing the role with, with Devin and, and he was totally in line with it from the start is, is of, of really internalizing things even, even more than one generally would um in 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 the average character and of um you know the less things he says the more meaning what he says uh has if that mm -hmm. makes any sense uh and ditto the, the the same with his movements and his efforts all of it's kind of all of it's kind of based on thermodynamics for him he's he's an animal just like the, the any other animal in the forest and so he has to, again, it's, it's, it's the stuff that comes organically out of the circumstances. He, he grew into that and that's, that's always been his life and he doesn't really know um, uh, um, different from it. So, um, and we, I just went through the, the same things with, with Camille and, and uh, who plays the, the, I guess, by default, the main character of the story Anne and, and Summer who plays the child and, and, and Nick, who plays the, the gentleman, all kind of had those kind of psychological talks. And, and that was really the biggest part of the, the direction that I had given them after that. It was just basically plug and play. They knew exactly what, 
what we were going for and, and were totally amped to do it. So, so do you know, because uh, even I took note of pieces of dialogue that spoke to me, like even, there'll just be like a line such as when Devin Sawa's character says, you know, when you learn to <clears throat> capture, I can't remember what it is verbatim, but capture things that run versus things that uh, chase, that you chase. And so I, I'm just curious, like when you know, do you know when you like have a line where you're like, yeah, I nailed it. <laughs> just, just <laughs> yeah man that's that's the best part of writing i mean that's the only that's kind of if you're mining for gold that's finding a nugget there and that feeling that you get is the thing that you chase when you're a writer when when you know that something that you've properly put something across that is full of you and is the right way to go you know that's you can get goosebumps from just sitting at the at the computer that's totally the, it's, that's the best part for me out of, out of writing and the reason why I still do it. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Brian. Um, so let's talk about casting. Uh, Camille, I loved. Summer, I loved. Summer, and also enjoyed her in the recent Child's Play sequels. And then Devin and uh, Nick Stahl, who haven't really been in a whole lot of stuff, but now have kind of made their comeback in this movie perfectly. I mean, when you watch them audition, we're just like, oh my God, these these four make the like the perfect uh, quadruple force to make, make this film. Yeah, it's there's wonderful stories behind each of them. And um, there was a time when when we were really getting down to shooting and things were still up in the air. So um, I'm, I, I, I thank them in my, in my heart almost every day through this process that, that it, it turned out way better than it could have. And I was concerned at what 1.4 and, you know, each of them came about it in a different way. Uh, Camille saved our asses in, in, in more ways that I could explain in, in half an hour. Um, Summer, Summer's character started out as a eight-year-old boy until I met Summer. Um, and then she, the, the eight-year-old boy became whatever Summer was. <laughs> and um, uh, Nick and Devin, man, I'm just real thankful that they got to, they got to come here and do their thing. They, they seem to enjoy themselves a lot. And it shows in 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 their work uh for sure here that they were that they were real gamers and you know it takes a lot we, we were shooting a lot out in the middle of nowhere and so there was not even like running water or uh electricity or anything like that for a, for a while it was remote like the story was remote and for 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 people the cast and crew for them to be out that far like you have to be in it 100% and, and be liking what you're doing or it's just a nightmare from beginning to end. <laughs> and you and you filmed on location where at again? Uh, we filmed, there were three different locations for the deep, deep stuff. Um, we were in basically close to, it was all shot in Manitoba. Um, the, the deep stuff was shot in the, uh, in, in, Pinawa, which is close to the Ontario border, um, up in the Canadian Shield where things get rocky and there's water and things like that. 
the the the, the flatter foresty parts were shot in in a place called Libau, Manitoba, which isn't even that it's we shot in. I'm not even sure if it's a town. It's seemed like just an area when we were shooting um and and the other part of it was filmed in a national uh you know in a provincial park um the cabin was a was a heritage building that was you know a hundred plus years old that they we were lucky enough to be able to shoot in so it was mainly those three places great and also, nope. I got to bring up um, the music of the film, composer Kevin Cronin. How did you uh, collaborate with him? I guess y'all met on In Plain Sight, maybe? No, I'd, I'd never even, I've, I've actually never, uh, I was never in the post-production process that deep in, uh, in Plain Sight. Um, I, we kind of just bumped into him. He was... The, um, Mar Vista was the, the company that was uh, making this all happen for us. And they had worked with Kevin before and Kevin lives in our, our city. Um, so they put us together and, and we had a few chats and, and gave the, the general idea of what we were looking for. And, and he knocked it out of the park. He did a great job. That was really good, really good. And then I've got to ask... So being a filmmaker, one of the things, elements that maybe many filmmakers look forward to is practical makeup effects. <laughs> and without spoiling anything, working with practical makeup, makeup effects such as blood, gore, bones, whatever. What, did you enjoy that? Do you like putting your actors through that? It's got to be fun. Something like like an Evil Dead, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell type of thing, you know, where you're buckets of blood and stuff like that. <laughs> of course, it's one of the the funniest, the, the, the most fun parts of, of making the gory movie because it's also the most kind of risky. Um, you know, the, 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 there aren't a ton of gory parts in the movie, but the ones that are really need to be realistic in order to pay off because the rest of the movie is not gratuitous and 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 natural so um and there are events that really lend themselves to being gory without giving away too much of it so when we're shooting it and and actions have to be made and and you know sometimes you only get a couple of setups and, and things like that and it happens on camera it's like you know we we did that. That looked great. That you know, I guess move on. That's perfect. And we were lucky enough to have uh, uh, Doug Morrow and Aaron Murky are two people that I'd known for a very long time, and and they do really, really great makeup effects work. And you know, some of the tasks that um, uh, that were to be done in this movie were right up their alleys for sure. It's the kind of stuff that you know. The ending is the kind of stuff that makeup affects people love to or, or live for. <laughs> That's great. You, you uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that uh, when we were asking about my my reaction to the film, uh, you had mentioned something about like it's hard to know because you spent so much time editing this and watching it over and over that you kind of don't know if it truly has that that impact that you're looking for. But do you know that at the end of this film, or just because of the places that it goes to, like on set, 
whereas like yeah that was the the perfect amount of fucked up that i was looking for while while it was shooting you mean yes yeah you you definitely because there it's a different kind of thing it's it's fun to see things as they're in their transitional phases like Mm -hmm. It, it became, uh, when I was writing the script, it became, uh, after 10 years, it almost became kind of blueprint-ish because again, you're, you're writing things that are, aren't any surprise to you at this point. Um, but once it changes from the script to uh, the movie, that's a new, and you're, you're walking through that transformation as it's happening. That's a really, really exciting bit. And it, it, it makes it kind of, new again because it's transforming and so um yeah those during shooting it's when you see that it is kind of hitting you for the first time and um before it was just kind of you know in the script it mentally it mentally hits you because you're you're anticipating it um but seeing it visually for the first time you do get some of that like wow, that's, that's what that's going to look like eventually. So, um, yeah, but then you, again, you shoot it and then you assemble it and then you watch it three times a day for uh, two months. And suddenly it's like, like I love steak. I don't want to eat it three times a day for two months or I'm just going to hate steak. And that's kind of, that's kind of how it winds up with, with movies i'm i'm never surprised when i hear that directors just don't watch their stuff after they're done editing it because of course it's been all over your face at one point in time just soaked now, with it now do you i mean have you watched it since then are you going to watch it on release day again with people or are you are you done with it for a while uh we can't really all we're in in Winnipeg, we're in kind of a, a heavy lockdown. So being in groups um, comes out on December the 18th and we won't be out of it by then. So being in groups is going to be impossible for when it premieres. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, um, seeing how it unrolls in light of the COVID um, uh, circumstances. Um, but yeah, I like I'm not gonna rent it. <laughs> uh, if there's, a, I a couple of weeks ago we were uh, testing it on a on a very very big screen just to see what what it looks like, and I watched, you know, 20 minutes of that just to see, because again that's a new thing. You're seeing it giant, uh, so it is a, a kind of a, a transformative phase in it. So. You know, I enjoyed that for 20 minutes and then concentrated on other things. <laughs> Speaking of other other things, you have some upcoming projects, uh, perhaps with a movie or a script called 20 Paces or uh, when, Fla- when Falcons Fly. Uh, are you still involved in the writing process of those? Um, in Falcons, or When Falcons Fly is a, uh, an Icelandic, or will eventually be an Icelandic Canadian co-production. It's about the, the Winnipeg Falcons, which is a hockey team that um, won the very first Olympic gold and Stanley Cup in the same year. 
uh, or not the Stanley Cup, it was the, 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 the version of it. Um, but I just, I'd, I'd, written, I'd written the screenplay from an existing story. Um, so I'm a bit of a hired gun on that one, but 20 Paces is, is, um, is, is a, another screenplay that I'd had. I think that was written when I was, I was still in before I was in university. So I was, I was, I think 21 when I wrote that script and that was kind of what got me, got me my first agent and, and got me into the, uh, the business of screenwriting. Um, but yeah, I, that's hopefully going to be in the works. I've got a few scripts. It's it, neither of those will be things that I'll be di likely directing. Um, but my next directing projects are hopefully going to be this summer if if the world opens up in time. What, what does a script of yours need for you to decide that this is going to be one that I need to helm? Or is it more business related? Well, it's it's more business really as a as a screenwriter, you kind of have to have a lot of um, a, a lot of stuff going at the same time. Just if you if you're just pushing one movie, then you know Hunter Hunter took eleven years, so there'd be a lot of hanging out time waiting for your ship to come in. Um, so you kind of have to have the more the more things that you're. Uh, the more scripts that you're passionate about sharing, uh, the more those should be shared. And what does it for me is, is I guess, the absence of errors or glaring um, lag points in scripts. Once it feels complete, um, even if it's not, even if it's, you know, uh, maybe at the, the beginning of a long, what will become a long rewrite process, but once it's it's attained that kind of level, uh, then I've, I've confidence in, in getting it out and enough passion to make it if they say yes. Mm. So for, for, for Hunter Hunter during the scripting process, did you work with any consultants or anything like that, or even maybe psychologists to kind of get into the, the mental states of these uh, characters or even like the delusional state that may be at the end? But uh, even like the specificity of like the trapping felt very authentic to me, even though I have no idea of how that's done, but it just because you did it in such a specific way, it felt tr true to me. Yeah, that was all just doing research. The, the, the criminal element of it has, has always been kind of ingrained in me. My father is a, a criminologist and, and writes books on criminology and, and, and teaches at our university. Um, so I've always had a bookshelf filled with um, uh, the psychology of, of criminals and serial killers. And those were the things that I stole from his office when I would, when I would go by and, you know, they're still on my bookshelf over there. So that research is, is kind of in, in, I find that stuff really easy and interesting, not easy, but I can navigate it um, in an educated way. Uh, I've, never I'd never had any hunting experience prior to to doing any of this but that was just you know I've gone hunting a couple of times since then and and the rest has just been speaking with um uh trappers and and getting it's more the banal details and the and the the, the processes that aren't as important those those things that fill in those blanks that gives it the kind of 
uh, an invisible air of authenticity mm-hmm. that you don't quite can't quite put your finger on it, but it just feels right. And I wanted I wanted that before we ever um, you know went to camera. I needed to have that knowledge on the day so that when the actors were asking, then I also had the answer of uh, a, a good answer to put forth on on why they were doing what they were doing. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a great cloud of mystery in this film, like even so much that, you know, Brian and I had discussions offline about like what may what this may mean or what the true intentions of this character are. But in your opinion, what is the art to balancing ambiguity as a filmmaker? Um, For me, I write. Ambiguity is is a is a is a big tool or a big color in, in my palette and everything that I do. But I guess it depends on what kind of filmmaker that you are. Some people use no ambiguity, like they're just essentially black and white uh, movies that are putting forth a certain point, and a lot of those are super effective. Um, I think the unknown, when it certainly obviously lends itself to mystery, and this is. This is essentially a, a horrific mystery story, I guess, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. Um, so those bits of unknown, they're also a way of, of putting an original angle on, um, on you know, more traditional material um, of, of finding interesting ways to not show crucial things mm-hmm. and that's again i'm trying to to tiptoe around both the story and and a, a bit of a complicated uh a bit of a complicated idea but yeah it's it's uh, it's kind of you know it's the stuff that's not there this is a movie about being missing i guess yeah and the fact that there are pieces of the story crucial to the understanding that are also m- missing, you feel that sense of uh, missingness in a much more tangible way. Is that, yeah. is that, yeah, does that it give sense. away anything? Again, I'm not, yeah. And it's, it's hard to talk about this movie because every all the questions I have are tied to uh, the parts that we can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a twist, I mean, the trailer um, uh, uh, shows quite a bit it's a wicked trailer and and uh by the way uh thank you to to the ifc you you're right they they're a, a fantastic organization they've been treating us really uh really with a lot of care but yeah the the twit there's a there's there's a big twist that happens like 25 minutes into the movie and after that anything that you say about the film it has to include that little point which you know, I'd love to keep a secret to as many people as I can. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of twists and it makes it hard to, to discuss the finer points of the movie without giving them away. I think what I'll just tell people uh, is that I'm, I'm a big fan of the movie Hold the Dark on Netflix. And I feel like this makes a great companion piece with that. And so I think if people really like uh, 
mystery and effed up things but also has like this nice layer of i don't know like a, a thinking man's material um i think i think uh, that that probably be the best way that i'm gonna go about it cool well thank you hey um hold the dark like made me really freaked out and anxious when it first came out just because it sounded exactly like the synopsis that i had read uh sounded exactly like uh um what hunter hunter was dealing with and the director was one of my favorite like blue ruins one of my favorite yeah. low budget movies ever and uh watching the first 20 minutes i had my hand like the first 20 minutes deals a lot with the same themes as hunter hunter and so i was freaking out like where is this gonna it's just gonna it's gonna wipe out my entire movie but after the after the first <laughs> 20 minutes it gets it gets really different and i kind of calmed down a bit more and was able to enjoy the movie for what it was. But yeah, that, that made me really nervous when that first came out. Cause it's like, wow, <laughs> this is going to be a dope movie by a, a wicked director. And it's really similar to mine that, that I'm trying tooth and nail to get made. So great minds think alike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go on to some fun questions to wrap all of this up with. Um, so first off, you you're from you grew up in Winnipeg, right? Mm -hmm. um, so why is it that the greatest pro wrestlers of all time are from Winnipeg? <laughs> <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper, Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega. <laughs> Roddy Piper was from here too. I think it's just because there's, or particularly, you know, when you're young, there's not a ton to do, but, you know, beat each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, each other off a fence into a table and stuff like that. You kind of get that, the cold must get, must toughen the skin a little bit more. Right. <laughs> That's good. And um, why is or in your opinion why is the perfect film called the dark crystal because it's a dark puppet movie and i used to I, again because we weren't allowed to watch uh you know much television or movies every birthday party that i had dark crystal was on there every birthday that my little brother had uh we're watching the dark crystal so as a kid, that now Dark Crystal occupies an untouchable area. It's kind of like Star Wars too, where it's like it's cast in gold and it's beyond all form of criticism. It's 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 the one of the movies that shaped me. Like the Muppets are probably the, like Jim Henson is probably one of the biggest shapers of of who I was. Um, and the Dark Crystal is the best part of the Muppets, which is when they get scary. Um, which is so good. Like one, my, one of my dream movies to make is a very scary puppet movie, uh, like a really dark um, uh, a puppet movie. And, and that has to have its beginnings uh, at the Dark Crystal. Like That's awesome. I was just thinking the movie uh, 20 Paces would be a great puppet movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's any movie, any movie you could, you could think of like, uh, the Hunt for Red October. Awesome. That'd be an awesome puppet. <laughs> you know, Terms of Endearment. I would watch that puppet movie where I wouldn't watch the actual Terms of Endearment. It just, it bumps everything up. 
puppetizing everything bumps it up one full letter grade. Please do your own Be Kind Rewind movie where you just have puppet remakes of all these other movies. I would love, I would love to do that. Oh my, we could just go through the list of puppet (laughs) remakes. Every movie. Probably easier to shoot during COVID times too. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Couple socks, a few googly eyes. (laughs) Um, What is your most thrilling movie experience, both as a filmmaker and as a fan? Um, As a Filmmaker, it had to have been somewhere during Hunter Hunter, um, I guess, or that maybe that's just because it's a, a vivid, vivid memory of things. It might have been shooting through. We actually had a force majeure um, during the shooting. We had a giant snowstorm that uh, wiped out all other uh, productions that were going on in the province that day, um, but we fought through it because we were out in the middle of nowhere and that time there of just seeing the people who were all working for the same end and it was for all working for something that I really cared really dearly about and doing it with a lot of enthusiasm um, which I never would have done as a working below the line I would I wouldn't have that much um, investment into any of the shows that I was uh, that I would have been doing, much less one that was in the middle of a massive snowstorm out in the middle of nowhere, um, and just that enormous sense of gratitude um, that I felt um, for all those people. It was like because it was also during the end, getting to the end of the shoot, and realizing that I couldn't have done any of this to the level that it that it that it was at. Um, without the help and dedication of all those people. So it's like, that might've been the most vivid moment for me mm-hmm. um, of watching a movie. It was probably, when I was a kid, my brother, when my parents were gone, my older brother brought home a platoon and full metal jacket. Mm-hmm. And they had watched it. I can. I can still remember, I, I must have been like 11 or 12 at the time. He had a buddy over, they were both watching um, uh, Full Metal Jacket. And I really wanted to see what this was all about because the parents were gone, the curtains were closed. There, were, there was like a tension in the air between the two of them. And I creeped around the corner just in time to see Vincent D'Onofrio just black spaghettios all over the top of the of the bathroom wall and instantly I was like, oh Jesus. And I walked right back into my room and it was like, ever at that moment just burned itself into my head for for years, for months, months and years after that. Like it's, and and then once I saw it as I, as I became an adult and then I got to see the entire movie, I was like, when's the blowing the head off part? And it was like, the minute I saw Private Pile, I was like, oh, that's the guy who gets it. That's the guy who I remember who gets it. And just following him right up to the moment is like, it's, it kind of comes full circle when you get to see it in the, in the proper context when you're an adult and it, it had such a significant moment, but it was like an island of a moment that had no, mm. no, no context to it. So maybe that was the, the most um, uh, significant moment watching movies for me. It's probably when your dark mind was born. 
Yeah. I also accidentally kicked his buddy in the face that made him get a broken nose that day. So it really, there was a lot of stuff that went on that day. <laughs> the day that will live in infamy. Um, also, are there any certain specific scenes from films that always stick with you? Um, like would, oh, yeah, probably the, the Full Metal Jacket one. Any, any others that, you know, that when you're making, let's say, Hunter Hunter or any other movie that you're just like, oh, go back to this scene. This is what I want to get this tone or something. Tone. When I, um, as, y yes, lots. Um, one of the most vivid examples or the one that applies a lot to Hunter Hunter and to what I kind of, the, it's an image that never, or, or that will always pop up if I'm doing something in the horror genre inevitably. And that's the very ending of, of the Dutch vanishing, uh, mm. spore, spore loose. Um, by George Schluzer. It's um, that last scene is kind of, you know, it's, it was a major influence on Hunter Hunter and that they're both kind of very, they're both um, movies that move at a deliberate pace and all lead towards an ending that like when I first saw The Vanishing and saw that ending, I was like, I, without knowing, like I suddenly I, I realized that I was standing up and you know, my hands were pulling down my face and wasn't really aware of it. Um, I don't know if I should give away the ending to the van to a movie that was made in 1988 or something like that. But yeah, that that last image always comes like it was terrifying for me. And so all the time when I'm trying to think of a significant moment, I was like, well, what are those elements that like why does that scare me? And how can I use those? as an ingredient in a different cake. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are, that, that was one of the significant ones for Hunter Hunter, but yeah, I, I, all the time that happens, all the time there are, are little scenes and things like that that'll stick with you. Conveniently that's enough. It's, that's a great, that's, uh, any last like that's, that's really interesting because uh, for me, uh, I tend to, I have so many movies in my collection that are just there. I may have seen them one time, but I watched them so many times in my head and I feel like this is going to be one of those movies. Are you okay with uh, having that as a product that's out there in the world that maybe somebody won't watch it again outside of like, because me and Brian, we like these kind of stuff. We'll watch it over and over, but there may be other people out there that watch it one time, but it's just gonna, it's gonna etch their way into their memory. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty relentlessly grim movie. It starts, they're kind of in bad, in bad shape. Um, their, their situation is not great. And then it just progressively gets way worse. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I, don't I wouldn't be surprised if people wouldn't want to see it twice for sure I'm glad that they liked it once yeah. um that's really you know I'm making a horror movie um that's the 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 objective of that is to horrify people and if you're doing that successfully um then then you've you've done what you set out to do and that's that's really you know the fact that it is working like I never want to see that ever again it's that's cool that's cool by me 
I mean, that it, it had some effect on you. It was worth taking the 90 minutes of your life out of, because um, there are lots of movies that you do wish you get back. <laughs> as long as it as long as it gets some kind of has some kind of effect, then then it's doing what it should. Yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna be like the ring. We're gonna be sharing that tape with other people. Good, good. Yes, we are. So we've come to the conclusion of our our show, My Buddy Podcast, and the spotlight is on you, Sean. Uh, please, in the form of the great pro wrestlers of Winnipeg, tell everybody where they can find Hunter Hunter. Well, I can't be screaming. I, 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 <laughs> you can find you can find Hunter Hunter uh, December the eighteenth. And it's on um, iTunes or Apple Apple TV in the in the states and on video on demand and in theaters. I know it's playing in Austin a bunch of places if you're if you're talking Texas. Um, but yeah, everything opens up on December 18th. Uh, if you like disturbing movies, you, you might like this one. Um, and I I hope you go see it. <laughs> 